Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Winner Kathy Show. I'm your host, Kathy Zhang. Today is a special pre-recorded interview with Professor Victor Hansen because we want our crew to be able to go home a bit earlier today to celebrate the Lunar New Year's Eve. It's equivalent to Christmas Eve, so we do want them to not work until 8 p.m. California time and be able to have dinner with their loved ones. It's a Lunar New Year's Eve dinner, the most important meal for the whole year for people like Chinese, Vietnamese, and some of the Asian uh, countries. So here on behalf of Wei, we'd like to wish you a Happy New Year of the Tiger. So 2021 is just behind us. To many of you, it is a tough year. Although you may rather forget what happened or what rather it not happened, but uh, we do want to understand why some of those things happened and what they mean. Crime spike, notably with nationwide flash and grab robberies. Inflation sky high, breaking 40 years record, coupled with a supply chain crisis. Two million illegal immigrants crossed the border as well as the continued and the tightening restriction related to COVID. What all of these will lead us to? Distinguished senior fellow at Hoover Institution, classicist and uh, military historian, Professor Victor Davis Hansen argues that uh, these might be the indications of systems collapse. But what is systems collapse? What's the fundamental reason for such collapse? If you watched our show last Friday, we have shared this part with you. But he further explained why he is so worried about the inflation and also the racism factor in there. He used the term good racism versus bad racism and the overall direction that America is heading and how to stop such systems collapse. So I start the interview with Professor Hansen with the most basic question. What is systems collapse? Well, in history, there are a, a num number of examples uh, of success successful societies that start to unwind. And it's not because of climate change or foreign invasion or anything like that. Um, it's not inevitable. So Rome in the West, let's say, started to unravel between 430 and 480 um, AD. But Roman society in the East, it, Constantinople would go on for a thousand years. So obviously something was different. And the characteristics are pretty easy to identify. Suddenly it's not safe to be out. If you want to take a trip, you have to calibrate what time of day you go or whether you'll be assaulted or not. If you want to buy food or necessities or find shelter, the shelves will be empty. Or if you are of a particular tribe within your group, you might have to band together by superficial appearance because you're afraid another tribe will attack you and tribalism has replaced the central authority of the government. Or you have no confidence in the government because it's chaotic or it won't enforce laws or it enforces laws asymmetrically. But all of that filters down to your existentials of living and so food and shelter and transportation 
become very hard and they, and they unwind. And why does this happen? It's usually because either the currency has lost its value during inflation or deficits or borrowing, or there is a breakdown in the application or the enforcement of law or criminals are not incarcerated. Or more importantly, people don't believe anymore in the authority or the um, legitimacy of government, and they start to freelance on their own. And all of those things happen. They happen in the Mycenaean world. They happen during the Greek city-state. They happened in particular uh, periods in the European Dark Ages. So they're not uncommon. And they can be quite abrupt. They can happen you know, over a period of years rather than decades or centuries. It's not that there's not long-term catalysts for it. but and I, and I tried in that article to suggest that when you go to the store today, you may not find what you want. And you'll see for the first time in my life, large areas of shelving that's empty. Or when you want to buy fuel, suddenly you have to decide whether you want to drive or you want to buy something if, or because of the inflation. Out here in California, $5 a gallon or you want, might want to buy a steak that was affordable and now it may cost $45, you can't buy it. Or if you're going to Los Angeles or San Francisco and you have a nice car and a used car, you might decide that you're not going to drive your newer car because you could be carjacked or it could be stolen or the catalytic converter could be cut out. Or when you go to San Francisco, you might not want to walk into the Tenderloin at night or even down in Market Street during the day. Or your ethnic group may be targeted by another ethnic group, so you never really identified by that group, but you're forced to now because you don't have confidence in the state to, to keep you safe. Or your schools that were places of safety and unity now have either been shut down or they're they don't exist or they exist in something that's a form that's unrecognizable so i'm pretty worried about it because it seems to me that this is a, a matter not just of left or right or democratic republican but the stuff of life is now in danger mm -hmm. yeah so i think what you it described um, from the history, actually people can really relate to what's happening right now. So uh, just from the history, what do you think we can learn what's the fundamental reason for that to be happened? What went wrong? Well, in a lot of these cases, there were or decisions, there, the people in, within a society or a state or a nation are no longer they no longer accept the premises of that state or that culture. And every, every city, state, every nation has to believe that it's unique, it's better than the alternative, and it has a history, origins, lifespan that's worth defending, whether materially or, or abstractly. But here in the United States, we're in an Orwellian situation where we have two million people from the poorest parts of the world who are dying to get in here, but a large number of our elite are telling them and telling us in general that this is a bad country at its origins. It got worse during its development and it's hopeless now unless we fill in the blanks. We have to use race to determine appointments. We have to get rid of the electoral college. We've got to jump the filibuster. We've got to have a national voting law contrary to the spirit of the constitution. We've got to let in two states. We've got to put in 15 justices, all because 
this country is so toxic, but then they cannot explain at the same time if it's so toxic, why do they and millions others want to live here? And so there's no confidence in the institutions anymore. Nobody has respect. And then the other thing is that relativism rather than absolutism uh, starts to permeate a society. And by that, I mean, you can always argue for something uh, something wrong with something. So if you have a homeless person and he's shooting drugs or he's defecating on the street or he's hitting somebody with a hammer, you can say, well, I don't know about his upbringing or he made a bad life choice or I wouldn't want to be. And then what you always do is you punish the innocent victim or you expect the citizen to obey laws that you will not enforce in terms of the criminal. So the person who is a citizen and feels that he or she has a responsibility to follow the laws is the last on the totem pole of consideration by the state. So if you want to today get on an airplane, you're going to have to show a license or a passport, domestic flight. If you're from south of the border and you're being transported or you're taking a flight, you can show an arrest record because you have no passport or driver's license, but yet you're going to, even though you're residing here illegally and you've been arrested, that arrest record will allow you to have identification. And so, or if somebody, if you or I are walking in Oakland or San Francisco and somebody hits us in the face, it's going to destroy our day, our health, our, our year. But the person who hit it might not be subject to any punishment at all. He can say that he was provoked or he had a bad childhood or he, he was a victim of a particular. So there's a cynicism that develops that the law-abiding citizen is targeted who plays by the rules and pays the taxes so that the non-law-abiding -law citizen will not, be, will not be punished for transgressions. And then once you start doing that, then the law-abiding citizen says, you know what, I can't follow the law because I'll die if I do. So I'm going to take measures into my own hand. And that's dangerous too. He says, I'm going to live with my tribe. I'm going to make a clan. I'm going to buy my own weapons. I'm going to find my own sources of food or fuel. And, he, and that's what's starting to happen as well. You're talking about uh, the inflation right now. You know, everybody experienced that. They feel feel it, right? No matter they are left or right. So yes, it's yeah. highest highest in 42 years. Mm -hmm. And remember, it does not include the the most critical pricing in our life, our daily lives, and that's the price of uh, food and fuel, natural gas heating, or gas for your car. The consumer price index does not include those. So economists have suggested that maybe the last month of the year we were um, inflating the economy at about 9% rather than 7 but What that means in practical terms, if you're a hardworking couple and you're in your 60s and you put away, I don't know, $100,000 in a savings account, you don't really trust the stock market, you don't know much about it, you're not adept at flipping houses or investing in real estate, because it's not just inflation at 7 to 9%, it's coupled with a zero interest rate. That means that every year you're going to hand over or burn up $7,000 to $9,000 of your life savings because you're going to get no interest or maybe 1%, but you're going to lose somewhere between 7 to 9% of the purchasing power of your savings. Remember that in the 19... 
70s and 80s, yes, we had 10 to 12% inflation, but we had 10 to 12 to 13% interest rates. And so that was taken to discourage inflation and people who had passbook accounts were getting paid at the same level as they were losing. We've never been in a situation in my lifetime, and indeed I've never heard of it, where you have de facto zero interest rates that is encouraging consumption, but you're running 7 to 9% inflation. It's, it's toxic. Yeah, so where is it going to go, do you think? Well, we know that we have mechanisms to stop it, but when at the last year of the Jimmy Carter's administration in 1980, and then the first two years of Ronald Reagan, we had Paul Volcker, who was the head of the Fed, he said, I know how to stop it. And what he meant by that was he restricted the money supply, he didn't have quantitative easing, he didn't print money, and he increased the interest rates to a staggering level. I was farming at the time in my early 20s, mid-20s, and I can remember being very delighted to buy a tractor at about 18% interest because I didn't have to pay 21%. Or I remember getting a loan, a short-term ag loan for 16%. And so that has to stop because the society, it encourages just buy, 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 now before later and hoarding and all sorts of stuff. But to, to stop it, you have to have the interest rates that discourage spending. And that means when people don't buy things, uh, the people who supply those things lay off workers. So usually inflation is coupled. The remedy for inflation is high interest and recession. And that means that people lose their jobs. And then that can, it's pretty, you get the worst of both worlds, stagflation, you know, a recession and inflation as it goes down. And so Ronald Reagan was very fortunate that he's, he's, He stuck with it, but he was not going to be reelected in 1984. If you look at his polls as late as uh, mid-1983, Walter Mondale, the putative candidate in the Democratic Party the the next year, was ahead of him in the polls. And they were blaming Reagan. I can remember everybody hated Reagan because the interest rates were so high and their inflation had not stopped. And then suddenly it kicked in. He stopped the economy. We had high unemployment, and then we had very uh, low GDP, and then suddenly inflation crashed, and he cut taxes, and then the last, I should say the first 10 months of 1984, he had some, it was astounding. We had an inflation rate of about 3.5%, and he had a GDP growth of about 7%. And it was just booming, the economy. It was just incredible to watch. And that made sure that for the next five years, he, and we never really have had that problem since. And everybody had warned Joe Biden not to print more money and run up larger deficits when we were already 30, nearly $30 trillion in debt. And more importantly, not as we were coming out of a pandemic lockdown to give incentives for the people not to work when people had money because they have not gone out to eat, they hadn't gone to the movies, they hadn't gone on a cruise, and they wanted to buy things, remodel their homes, etc. And yet that huge demand would not be met if people were not working. They were, they were discouraged they could make more money at home. And that's exactly what he did. He printed money, 
He kept interest rates low, and he incentivized uh, non-participation in the labor force. And uh, also, right now, the supply chain is really uh, a problem, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it was global. The same thing happened in many European and Asian countries. But here in the United States, if you incentivize people not to work, and they have a lot of money from government money or from their own savings during a two-year lockdown, then they're going to go out and they're going to get on Amazon or they're going to go to Target or, and they want to buy things, buy, buy, buy. But if you don't have sufficient labor, if you don't have people that are out cutting wood or mining ores or pumping oil or work, running a plastics factory, they can't meet that huge demand. And so then people compete with each other to get the goods they want. And that competition is reflected in rising prices. So if you want, I'll give you an example. I wanted to put a new roof on my home. And I called the various roofers and I said, I'd like this color. We don't have that color. I said, okay, how about the other? We don't have that color. How about the other color? We don't have that color. They're, they're sold out. I said, well, I thought it was a very unattractive color. He said, we do have this color. And I said, well, I'll decide. He said, if you wait, somebody else is going to buy it. Mm. And I said, well, what is the price? And he quoted me a price. And I said, that's about double what it was uh, five years ago when I when I did a, a garage. And he said, I, it's going to be a lot cheaper now than if you wait. Well, that's the mentality and the psychology that happens in an inflationary economy. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it, it happens a lot, actually, I think, what you just explained. It's yeah. everywhere, everywhere. And it gets people very demoralized. They say, you know what? I put $100 a week out of my paycheck. I put it in the bank. I'm getting a half a percent of interest. And it's going down by 9%. It's not worth it. Or maybe I should go out and buy. Or maybe I should take out a loan at 2.8%. Even if I can't pay it back, at least. And then when you couple what's happening with these amnesties, when Joe Biden's floats ideas that, well, maybe we'll forgive 50000 in student loans to each person. Then we have the hardworking student that says, wait a minute, for the last five years, I've been paying off my loan. You mean that was stupid of me and I should quit doing that I, because this guy's going to get amnesty? That's not fair. And then when you add additionally that we are increasingly not a meritocratic society, when the president says, I'm going to pick and advance a black woman, well, that was very silly because there's a lot of very qualified black women. He should have picked one if that's what he wanted to do that was qualified and then not mentioned her race. But forever now, that selection is going to be the black woman selection. And that erodes confidence in the meritocratic society. And when you, when you see every aspect of, of society doing that, whether it's admissions to colleges, or hiring, then people start to lose confidence in the system. They say, what's the use of, you know, if you're a Southeast Asian student and your parents came here with nothing and you're studying, you're taking tests, you have a 4.5 from a good high school, you have a 98 percentile in the SAT, you were an Eagle Scout, you, everybody likes you, you're a student body vice president, and you don't get an Yale and somebody with 300 points less, then you say to myself, well, what was the purpose of all that? Why did I work so hard? And so it's not good to do things like that. And he's doing, in a variety of fronts, he's discouraging the traditional American formula that made us different from other places. Yeah, and you mentioned how good racism versus bad racism. 
Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that people in every society have an unfortunate human tendency to birds of a feather flock together. And we know that slavery, for example, exists today in parts of the Muslim world and parts of Africa. And that the United States had a checkered history. And the United States, but the logic of the Bill of Rights and the logic of the Declaration of Independence and the Civil War where 700,000 people got killed and the elimination during the Civil Rights Movement of Jim Crow in the South shows you that there was a moral progression and people tried to do that. So now all of a sudden, 50 years into the civil rights uh, remedies of affirmative action, where we actually hired people and used admissions to favor groups who felt they were or had been, whether they felt to or not, historically discriminated against, is not enough. So we have repertory discrimination where we're saying to people, we're going to take your slot or we're going to take your admissions or we're going to teach you that you're bad because of the sins of your grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. And so maybe you haven't done anything wrong in your life and maybe even your parents didn't, but the fact that this person over here had grandparents who were discriminated against, uh, you're going to pay for it. And the problem is that the big distinction in a a society that's as liberal and taller in the United States, it's class. What that means is that, what are we saying? That the Obama children or the the son of Eric Holder or the niece of Oprah Winfrey or Chris Rock's little brother, whoever they are, they're gonna get preferences because they have an immutable appearance, is that it? And somebody who works on a forklift in Tulare, if he's white or, or a different group, he's not gonna have any preferences because he's in the wrong color. That It's not gonna work psychologically. And what we're doing is we're mounting assaults on, on logic and reason and people are going to push back. And you can see it already where the Democratic Party has had 30 people announce their retirement from the House they're already only starting with a six-seat advantage. The polls show that whereas they were used to be nine points favorable in the generic polls, Republicans uh, have now closed that gap and are five points. And according to traditional political science, when they're even or the Republicans are down three, they usually win big. But when they're up five or six or seven, then they win in a landslide. And what we're seeing now is there's a lot of independent voters and conservative Democrats and the majority of the people, and they don't want to talk about it, but they are slowly coming to the conclusion that they don't want to live in a society where somebody can hit them in the face and walk out of jail. Or they don't want to go to a, store, a Rite Aid and see somebody walk out with a bag full of cosmetics or they don't want their child to say, what's the purpose of studying hard when I don't get in? And they're gonna to react to that. And how they react will be through the ballot box. So I think the Democrats know that and they're panicking now. And so they feel that their car is going over the cliff and rather than stop and get out and turn it around, they're accelerating. They're saying, you know what? If I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna open up the entire border. I'm going to put people on flights at night and land them all over the United States. If I suffer a setback 
in Virginia about critical waste theory, I don't care. I'm going to I'm going to mandate it everywhere. If I have inflation at 7%, I don't care if it goes up to 9 or 10%. I have to have an agenda because I'm going to lose power partially in 2022, but maybe totally in 2024. Because that's the only thing I can think of because none of the issues that Joe Biden has embraced have 50% support. And he's down from anywhere at 33 to 39% popularity. And yet he hasn't changed and he, and he doesn't want to change. So to put a stop on this uh, systems collapse, what do you think is the uh, most important thing to happen or people can do? I think everybody who has been nonchalant, and I think that's the majority of people, they say, you know, I'm not a political person. I don't give to candidates. I don't go down and sit there and volunteer my services at the polls. I don't tell my nephew to vote. I don't try to get in a political argument with my knees. That's, that time is over. We are an extremist. We're in a really difficult position. So everybody, according to their stations, has to say, whatever party you're in, I'm not going to vote for a candidate that lets criminals out. I'm not going to vote for a candidate that, what, that approves of what Mr. Uh, Gascon is doing in Los Angeles. I'm not going to uh, vote for a candidate who keeps printing money and talks about giving this money and this money to people who are not working. I'm not going to do it. And I think if people get active and start, they will send a message. And uh, I saw it once in my life, you know, in 1972, the Democratic Party said, well, Hubert Humphrey lost to Nixon in 68. It was a very close race. And the logical thing would have been to say Humphrey almost won. He was going to catch Nixon in another week had the election been later. So what did he do? Let's build on it. They didn't. They said, oh, the traditional centrist, moderate laws, we're going to go hard left. And they took over the Democratic Party. They said there was going to be welfare for everybody. They were going to cut half the aircraft carriers. They were going to have a big wealth. And they nominated George McGovern. And George McGovern got slaughtered because people were terrified of him. And even after Watergate, the Democrats then said, we can't get elected unless the guy has a Southern accent. I'm being kind of informal here and facetious, but not completely. So then they nominated Jimmy Carter because they tried to say he was moderate. He was from Georgia. Then they nominated Bill Clinton. Then they nominated Al Gore. And the idea was they had to have a moderate. And they gave up on that. And so they had Obama, who was very radical, but he was the first African-American. He was charismatic. He was young and he got elected. And then they thought, we'll do Biden will go hard left. But each time, each year that's happened, they've gone harder and harder. And I think they're going to have a correction. And then the squad and this Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, somebody's going to say, you did this to us. You lost my congressional seat. I was governor, but I had to follow in your footsteps or you, you. And then when that happens, there's a recalibration. And I think the Democrats know that's coming. Our time's up, unfortunately, yeah. but in the future, maybe we can talk more about election. Actually, you know, it's upcoming and the people really yes. care about what's happening. Yeah. yeah, it's it's very important. I think that every everybody exercises a right as a citizen. And if they have the time
time or the money to even a small donation to a candidate or to a proposition or a ballot initiative or to volunteer or to get out the vote. It's very important. This is very important because we're in deep trouble. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Hansen is especially worried about the systematic attack on our ancient institutions in 2021, including the war against the 233-year-old Electoral College and the right of state to set their own balloting laws in national elections. The 180-year-old filibuster, the 150-year-old nine-person Supreme Court, and the 60-year-old 50-state union. So how to address these issues? And uh, do you have any questions to ask Professor Victor Hansen? Please leave your comments or send email to us at the address listed below. All right, that's it for today. And uh, take care. We'll see you on Wednesday.